Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by OldSchoolShirts.com. Hey, check them out. You like defunct teams and leagues and T-shirt form? Well, you'll find them there, but a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Do you remember a radio station of the past or perhaps a mall that you used to go to? All kinds of great cultural and sports memories can be found at the great folks at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. We welcome you to Toyota Field in San Antonio. It is the 2022 USL Championship Final. We've been relentless in our preparation. It's about keeping a steady head uh, and just business as usual. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to critical moments. It's been a long journey to get to this point. I ask that you give it all tonight! Our boys need it tonight! Tonight, our boys will bring home a championship! The USL Championship Final is underway in 2022. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. My goodness, can you believe it? A new year already. Happy 2024, every year, uh, everybody, he says. And I uh, hope your new year is already off to a great start in the wee hours of January the 1st as we drop this episode how are you? My name is Tim Hanlon, and you have survived another turning of the calendar page to enjoy, hopefully, another fun session of good seats still available. Our little weekly sojourn into what used to be in professional sports. I am pleased to have you back uh, to the proceedings, and um, let's uh, get the uh, the year off to a fun and uh, surprising start with a wonderful conversation with a great soccer pro from the 70s and 80s. His name is Derek Curry. And uh, it's our excuse to get into the, it's a fascinating story about soccer uh, growing up in Scotland and playing there and helping domicile the pro game in Hong Kong of all places. We get some fascinating stories there. Uh, But also our excuse, as you saw in the labeling of this show, to talk about an off forgotten team in the soccer annals of United States uh, history, the San Antonio Thunder. You remember them? Probably not. Even the most diehard soccer aficionados don't even remember that team. But here's our excuse to do so. Derek played on that team in 1976. They were a two-year wonder in the North American Soccer League at that time, playing in 1975 as well as 76. Uh, Bobby Moore, remember that name? A legendary English player uh, was on that team, as was our conversationalist this week, Derek Curry, we get into how the hell that even happened. Here's a guy who who grew up and played uh, in the professional ranks at the top tier level uh, in Scotland and found himself in 1980 after a handful of years at the top league in the pro leagues in, in, in Scotland in Hong Kong 
of all places, helping start up with a bunch of his Scottish football colleagues, the first ever pro league in Hong Kong. Uh, really interesting stuff there. And uh, you can imagine as um, as startup leagues might go, uh, the various international stars and teams that came calling and visiting. Uh, Pele, for example, uh, with Santos. Uh, the New York Cosmos, uh, Sans Pele, in the later part of the decade, uh, came by. And, you know, again, uh, this is really interesting because this sounds a little familiar. If you're an MLS fan, you'll know that Lionel Messi and Inter-Miami will be uh, visiting Hong Kong on their preseason tour next month. Hard to believe, but uh, history may not repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. Well, Derek Curry did that and has done that before. Uh, and we get into some very interesting um, uh, uh, stories and anecdotes about sort of those international uh, visits and that kind of stuff. But the San Antonio Thunder uh, part of this story is really, really interesting. And we get into sort of how going from Scotland to Hong Kong and then going from Hong Kong on loan to play a summer in the United States for this, uh, I, I would argue, not necessarily huge hotbed of soccer at that time in the mid-70s, San Antonio and Texas generally. Um, but as you heard in that clip uh, from uh, 2022, San Antonio FC, uh, very alive and well, thank you very much, playing at Toyota Field there in San Antonio, winning the USL championship uh, that season. Um, uh, and I think in 1976, I'm sure Derek and and his colleagues probably thought, what are we doing here? What, why are we here in San Antonio? How many people are really even interested in this sport here? Um, but sure enough, like a lot of things, a lot of cities and a lot of uh, early uh, uh, professional exploits. I mean, you remember the Atlanta Chiefs back in the late 60s, early 1970s in the NASL. Um, I think most people and then the return of the Chiefs in the latter part of the 70s and 1980. Um, if you had followed the Chiefs back then, small and hardy bunch of fans, and, and I, I don't think many would have thought that, you know, 40 some odd years uh, after that, that the Atlanta uh, uh, MLS franchise would be one of the most strongly supported and heavily attended uh, teams in MLS history, let alone winning a championship. But there you go. And San Antonio, no, uh, no, um, no different. Uh, if you remember the San Antonio Scorpions of the second version of the NASL in the uh, in the last decade, 2012 to 2015, they won uh, in 2012 the North American uh, uh, Supporters Trophy. That means that they were the best team in the regular season, and they won the Soccer Bowl Championship in 2014 as well. So without the exploits, and, uh, and we'll talk about those uh, uh, interesting days in 1976 in particular with Derek coming up. Uh, without those uh, uh, early days in San Antonio pro soccer history, you wouldn't have San Antonio FC nor the San Antonio Scorpions uh, championship uh, exploits either. And uh, I, I would dare to say that San Antonio has always been at least around the fringes in the conversation about a potential uh, expansion franchise in MLS, perhaps a little harder to um, justify uh, with uh, Austin's uh, existence now, but certainly a very strong and uh, uh, well-supported USL franchise there. And uh, that's all sort of uh, in, uh, enveloped in the conversation coming up with the great Derek Curry as we talk about soccer in Hong Kong, in Scotland, in San Antonio, 
uh, and all kinds of other things. Uh, it's a, a, a tremendously interesting conversation, and you will enjoy it hopefully as much as I had in uh, putting it together. Uh, let's uh, remind you that the uh, the book uh, you should get is uh, just jock full of great stories, not just the ones we're going to kind of traverse today. It's called When Jesus Came to Hong Kong, the remarkable story of the first European football star in Asia. And when you see the cover and you see the pictures in the book, you will understand why the term Jesus is in the in the title. Uh, a remarkable um, uh, look, shall we say, that Derek had back in the day. Uh, and um, uh, he was a pretty darn good soccer player as well. I don't know if he could walk on water, uh, but indeed, uh, the stories are uh, are plentiful and you will enjoy uh, this read if you are a soccer fan or um, just interested in uh, the culture back in the day in the 70s and early 1980s, both in Asia as well as uh, in the footballing world generally. Again, it's called When Jesus Came to Hong Kong, and you can find a convenient link to this book. Uh, and get it as fast as humanly possible through our friends at Amazon. When you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, just search up this episode with Derek, which is numbered 331, my goodness, and you will find uh, a few convenient links to get said book in your hot little hands as uh, quickly as they and we can get it to you. All right, let's waste no more time. Here is our fun chat that we had with Derek about, eh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, I uh, thoroughly hope that you are interested and uh, enjoy this conversation. As always, of course, please sit back and enjoy. So give us a little bit of a sense of the young Derek Curry, you know, as you're uh, in Scotland. Uh, put us back in the time. What, when is this and when do you start playing football in earnest? Okay. I suppose you could say I started playing football in earnest as soon as I could walk, <laughs> as daft as that may sound. But I, I grew up. I, I grew up in a sporting family. My dad was a was a very very good uh, footballer himself. But and he worked in John Brown's shipyard, built many of the the great ships, the Queen Elizabeth, Queen of Mary. Well, he was involved in building them. But uh, he had a family to look after, so he couldn't pursue his football career. I should have said soccer career. We'll use soccer from now on, <laughs> okay? Hey, it anyway. does, you know, we, we, we're purists, but whatever whatever fits floats your boat is fine by us. Yeah, okay. Well, I might flirt between football and soccer, so bear with me. Any, anyway, uh, my dad had a family to look after, so he couldn't pursue his soccer dream. He had a chance maybe to go down to England, play football, but he had a, a young family to look after. I had two older brothers who were a good a good bit older than me, but almost ten years. And uh, the the middle one, John, played for Glasgow Rangers, and for about four seasons. And the older one was called Dick, and Dick was a big star uh, as I was growing up because he was a he was a boxer, and boxing was very popular in in Scotland as it was in many parts of the world. And Dick was a uh, ABA champion in 1953-54. He was the first Scotsman to successfully defend his amateur boxing association title down in England at Wembley Pool in flyweight division. And then, of course, he he went to Vancouver and won the gold. He won the Olympic. He won the Commonwealth gold medal in 1954 at flyweight in Vancouver. So it was a bit of a it was a bit of a legend in in, in Scotland at the time. Everybody knew him. And then he went on to become the chief boxing reporter for one of Scotland's biggest newspapers. And uh, 
everybody knew Dick, and I, and I mention this, is because because everybody knew him. I used to meet famous people. I used to go out with Dick and he'd bump into the the top football players of the day in Scotland, and they knew Dick, so I get introduced. So I was always there with the excitement and meeting famous players, and they used to take me, Dick and John, my father, used to take me to football games to watch when I was maybe five, six years of age. So I get involved in football at an early age and learnt a lot of things and a lot of tips from my father and my brother gave me. And I ended up playing for some of the top amateur teams in, uh, in Scotland at that time. Uh, Glasgow United. I ended up, I played with a team called Cumbernauld United when I was, what, I was, what, 18 at the time. And there was a young guy who was in forward line with me. He was 16. And he used to joke and say that I used to babysit him. And, uh, and that young boy became one of the greatest football players of all time in Scotland, Kenny Dalglish, now called Sir Kenny Dalglish. Sure. Great, great career with, uh, with Liverpool, managed Liverpool initially with Celtic. And Kenny and I still chat from time to time. So, I, you know, I was very fortunate because of my sporting family to get involved in football. And I knew, and I knew I was, I was always going to make it in football. I knew I would be able to make my name sometime. I just had that, I don't know, I had that bit of confidence. Maybe it was because my encouragement from my brother, sporting family. I just felt I would make it somewhere. Anyway, uh, my dad said to me, look, son, you, you can't go professional early. You have to get something behind you. You need a job. You know, uh, one bad injury and you're... Your career's ruined. One bad tackle, you're finished. So reluctantly, I got a, a job for five years as a compositor, which is a which is a makeup type. You make up the typeface for the printers, and uh, it was a good job in its time. But for me, it was five wasted years. But it was five years I had to do. I had to get involved and have something behind me, as my dad had quite rightly said. So that was me. And, and that takes this is, us up. Derek, where this is where? This is in where? In Glasgow or, or This is in Glasgow. This is in Glasgow in Scotland. This sure. is all in Scotland. Yeah, Glasgow, yes. Sure. And and very industrial. That's a, that's not a surprising choice for Oh, it was it was industrial it was industrial city, very industrial. And uh but of course the big the big the big mecca for for, for sports fans and and Glasgow was either going to watch Glasgow Rangers or Glasgow Celtic. Football was just a religion in Scotland. Everybody looked forward to the weekend and the games where they used to get, you know, some cup finals, you'd get 80, 90, 100,000. They were fanatics, but we're, we're going back to the times when we, we didn't have all the smartphones and computers, etc. So for in those derbies and stuff, I'm sure it was just you were just itching to get back onto the onto the pitch and actually prove your your skills. When did you uh, make the jump? When did, and how did you get into you know getting into the into you know third line arc and and, and Motherwell in, in the in the Premier League or what is now the Premier League? Um, well, well, what happened was one of the things in Wiki. I never actually played with third line arc. I actually, I think Wikipedia did something that. I, we got that wrong, but anyway, sidetracking that. What what happened was I ended up. Uh, I was asked to sign for Motherwell Football Club, and Motherwell were in the Scottish First Division. And I played a trial on the Saturday against Glasgow Rangers, and I had a I had a good game. And the fullback who I knew, Alec Miller, said to me, "Derek, 
don't do anything to the boss talks he don't sign for Motherwell okay so on the Monday night I played another try against Glasgow Celtic the two big teams in Scotland we lost the game 3-2 had a good game and Rangers were interested in signing me but my middle brother John had played with Rangers and unless you're a full time player you never really make it one thing is you've got to be full time and the fitness is a big difference so I said I'll take my chance with Motherwell played with Motherwell but I was still in the last year of my apprenticeship I was only training twice a week and I I thought I was fit you think you're fit when you're young but I remember playing a game against Glasgow Rangers and I I realised I wasn't as fit as what I should be and, and I knew I had to be full time so what happens is out of the blue Hong Kong are looking for professional players Hong Kong it's, it's an infancy. I mean, the, in Japan and Korea, the leagues hadn't even started. And uh, I said, I'll go along and play this game for, and have a trial. So I went along and played the game at Douglas Park, home of, home of Hamilton Academical. And I, I said, there was scouts there. I said, I've just finished my apprenticeship, so I can think about going full-time somewhere. Somebody might want to pick me up. Anyway, I'm on the field for 10 minutes, and I've taken off, and I've scored a goal with my head which is uncharacteristic for me being five feet nine, but as it turned out, a lot of the hallmarks of my career <laughs> were scoring with my head. Anyway, I played 10 minutes I'm taken off. And the manager come and says to me, he was a Scotsman. He was over from Hong Kong and he was with a Chinese delegation and uh, he said, look, we think you'll be good enough to come to Hong Kong and uh, we think you would be a big asset, so we'd like to offer you terms. And I said to him, look, to be honest with you, I don't really think my future's in Hong Kong, um, but let me think about it. And then he hit me, he said to me, he hit me with a killer punch. He said, well, we think you'll be good enough to get into the Hong Kong League 11. And the Hong Kong League 11 in December are playing against Santos. So my ears started to twitch a little bit. Santos, he says, well, and, and Pelly's coming. And he said, we think you'll be good enough to get into the team and play against Pelly. And I said to him, where do I sign? <laughs> Everything went out the window. And it really, and it really I have to be honest with you, it, started, it must have started with the World Cup in 1970 in Mexico. For me, it was the greatest World Cup final of all time. Pelly, Testeo, Testeo, Jarcino, you, you name the players. They were just electrifying. And here's an opportunity for me to go over and play against the greatest footballer in the world. And I had watched him live, I think it was in 66, before the World Cup and, uh, was held in England. And they played a game, a warm-up game, against the Scottish national team. So there was only about, was only about another 12 or 14 Scotsmen who had ever played against Pelly. And I was at the game, standing, watching. I was playing with Queen's Park at the time, who whose home ground was Hamden Park. I was with another 90,000 people watching this game. Here's an opportunity for me to go and play and hopefully meet the greatest player in the world. So that was it. End of story. I set off for Hong Kong. The world of Susie Wong. It was an adventure. Didn't know what was going to happen, but it was an adventure. So this is this is 19... This is what, 1970 or so? That this, is, this, is, this is September 
This is September 1970 now, and I am on my way to Hong Kong, and I land in Hong Kong for, oh, stopped in Lebanon, stopped in Beirut, mm. stopped in Bangkok, never thinking, never thinking that would eventually settle in Bangkok and Thailand, but, and I landed in Hong Kong, September 10, 1970, and the manager said to us, be prepared for a few journalists are going to ask you questions and uh, do your best to answer. Might might be some odd questions, but do your best. So we get and we come out into the open area and we couldn't believe it. As I said in the book, Pelly couldn't have pulled a bigger audience. There was journalists all over the place. So suddenly we were in the main attraction. And the thing was, we were the first European professionals to play in Asia. Uh, nowadays, as you well know, we have players from Japan, Korea, playing in the best leagues in Europe. But at that time, we were the guinea pigs. So it was a lot on our shoulders. <laughs> we never realised at the time, but that was the beginning of the adventure in the Far East, Tim. Right. So give me give me a little bit of a sense of, of how this comes about, right? So... Uh, it's fascinating to me because... Okay, I'll tell you how it came about. Yep. What, what happened was the, the guy who owned the team in Hong Kong uh, had started a team called Hong Kong Rangers, named after a team he, he grew up and governed where Rangers were situated. So he called his team Hong Kong Rangers. And the team had been... The professional football had started a year, but there was no, there was no full-time professionals from Europe or anything like that playing. And... His team had a bad season and they got relegated. There was 12 teams in the league, so they said, OK, what are we going to do? And he came up with an idea. I'll go back to Scotland and sign three good players. But first of all, there was a problem because he was relegated. So what he had to do was he found out through the laws of the Hong Kong Football Association the league could be extended to 14 teams. So what he did was he put a, an application to extend it to 14 teams, but he had a lot of enemies and they didn't want him to succeed. The actual case went to the High Court in Hong Kong. The first time ever a case has ever been heard in the High Court in Hong Kong regarding football. Anyway, it was lucky. It was sustained, extended to 14 teams. So off he went to Scotland with these financial backers, uh, Chan Yukum, Dr. Chu Butt York, who were landowners in Hong Kong. So they had the money behind them. And they were the people who went there and they had this trial game and they selected three players. Walter Gerard, six feet one, great big fella, centre forward, Jackie Trainer, young boy, 17, skillful, midfield, big future ahead of him, and myself. So we were the three who went to Hong Kong to, to boost Hong Kong Rangers. And would we be successful? Well, time would tell. All right, I, a couple of questions here. So number one, why Scotland? Like, why there versus, say, other countries? Because he was from Glasgow himself. Ah, the manager, Ian Petrie, was from Glasgow. That was his town. And he knew there was players there. That's why he went to Glasgow. Now, would you, would you, could you make the argument that perhaps he was thinking that, you know, Scotland was kind of maybe a little bit more undiscovered, shall we say, in terms of talent? And he maybe had an inside line to it versus, say. Well, it was, it was well, it was well known. It was well known if you go back, if, if you look back in the history of football, some of the greatest individual players came from Scotland and they went and joined English clubs. 
So Scotland was a, was a great, in Glasgow in particular, it was a great breeding ground for, for getting successful players. You know, you, you go back and think of some of them, Dennis Gloss, Alex Ferguson and many more. They all came up. So Glasgow had good pedigree. So obviously it was a wee bit in his heart going back to Glasgow, but it was very national. He knew what he was doing because there was lots of talent to be picked up in that area. Okay, and then um, describe to me uh, what the what you just described, obviously, the relatively uh, bendable rules, shall we say, when it comes to the Premier League there. But, but I'm getting the sense that, that Hong Kong's professional soccer or football at the time was pretty the history was pretty scant there was there really wasn't any pro league of any any great sort there for for any extended period yeah but they had they had a good history there was a lot of good teams asian football at that time it, it went it went unnoticed him you got to remember there was no you know you didn't have any uh, computer sense so you didn't know you knew scant about football in asia at that time, and same as us, we didn't know what the standard would be like, but we soon found out the standard was a bit twofold. The Chinese players, the local Hong Kong players, were extremely skillful because they used to play a lot of seven-a-side football in concrete fields, and they, they were good at knocking the ball. The skills were excellent, but the other side of the coin, it could be quite physical, as we soon found out. And we found out that the defenders really wanted to send us back to Scotland and, and crutches some of the games. I was I was fortunate because my speed was a big asset and it used to get me out of trouble. But we we battled hard and we we became successful in the first season. Walter Gerard and I scored thirty goals each. We scored sixty goals between us. I got another six and another competition, and uh, so we actually paid the way for Petrie and we and we we actually increased the gates we added the interest in Hong Kong football to the fans and a lot of the games you couldn't get a ticket at the at the stadium which was 28,000 people but the fascinating thing for me Tim was within 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 almost three months of arriving in Hong Kong right the Hong Kong fans have christened me Jesus, <laughs> which means yeso in Chinese and Cantonese. I played against Pele twice, and I'm in Vietnam during the war for a week playing the football team, playing a football competition. Who would have believed within three months I'm called Jesus? Played against Pele twice, and I'm in Vietnam. That was an adventure. So, okay, so explain to me then, um, so uh, th at the time, right, Hong Kong was still a British protectorate, correct? Okay, so that must have made the transition a little bit easier, right? Because English was fairly well entrenched there alongside, you know, the Chinese culture and all that kind of stuff. But it was still, it was not nearly as, well, it was Chinese, if you will, but it, it was, was it was right? it was cosmopolitan. There you it go. was really cosmopolitan Hong Kong, a hundred percent. But you couldn't you couldn't do you couldn't move without a story about you in the newspaper. It was very it was it was very intro in some aspects. I mean everybody knew everybody from top to bottom and uh and it was just it was just a great mix, Hong Kong. And and a lot of the, the Hong Kong boys could speak English, some couldn't, but I mean football's an international language and that that wasn't a problem. But it was just it was just 
a great, great place. And I was a, I think I was the luckiest boy in the world that actually took that transition to Hong Kong from Glasgow because it took me away from a lot of the religious bigotry you got in Glasgow. Uh, and Hong Kong being cosmopolitan, it just you were just in a, a civilization, a place where everybody respected everybody and everybody got on with well with one another. How about the quality of play, both yours as well as that in the league? And were there other foreign players coming in as well? Well, yeah, we were, we were the catalyst, obviously, because we were so successful. Other teams quickly jumped on the bandwagon. Uh, and we won the league for Hong Kong Rangers in the first season. Uh, uh, and that's a feat which is never they've never equaled again since. So, yeah, we, we were the catalyst and... and, and Throughout the years, they brought players, but a lot of them, a lot of them came out like, like George George Best came over. We'll talk about George Best a bit later. But Georgie came over, and Charlie George, and Jeff, uh, some some other big names. But they never made it because they thought it would be easy. But it wasn't easy. You had to be fit. The Chinese boys were fit, and they can run all day as well. So it wasn't easy, and it became a very good standard certainly in the 70s up to the early 80s as well. So you didn't, I guess then, you didn't feel like you were missing anything by not... No, no, I wasn't missing anything. I, w- I wasn't missing anything. I'm, I'm playing against, I'm playing against Pelly. When I got my name, when I get my name, Jesus, I'm playing against the Swedish League champions, Jer Gardens. We beat them 3-2 and that's, I, got, I had a great game and I get credit the next day in the papers, Chinese papers, I said, uh, which means Jesus saves Hong Kong. That's where I got my name. So suddenly, I'm on I'm on uh, the pages and media. I'm getting fighted for interviews and radio, television, and all sorts of things. And in Hong Kong in the 70s, early 70s, everybody came in Hong Kong. You never knew who you would bump into in the street. <laughs> and I'm talking about famous movie stars and that. That was a that was a that was a great thing about Hong Kong, and I, I met a it was a chap who worked for the uh, Star newspaper, and he did the publicity page movie showbiz, and often he would say to me, "Derek, are you free today?" And I would say, "Yeah, okay, what's happening?" He said, "It's a press conference we're going to attend." I said, "Who is it today?" He said, "For instance, the Carpenters." So I would go up to the Star newspaper office in Pennington Street, meet Terry. We go down to the Hilton, and there we'd be sitting with Richard and Karen Carpenter, and getting a chance to have a chat with them afterwards. And I managed to meet so many people like that. The only, the only one I'm really, really annoyed about was one day he said to me, "Gary, you need to get down and meet us today." I said, "Oh, I'm tight. We've just finished training. I don't know if I can get there. Oh, you'll need to get and meet me at the office." I said, "Well, who's in town?" He said, "John Wayne." Now, I was, a, I was a cowboy fanatic from an early age. I knew all the movies, the searches, you name it. But I get caught in a traffic jam that day and I never managed to get to see my old hero in the, in the TVs, in the, on the screen, cinema screen, John Wayne. But, yeah, you never knew who you were going to meet. So I, I was missing nothing. I, was, I would have to say, I'm not being conceited about it, but I was like what George Best at the time was to Manchester. I was... I was what he was and 
Hong Kong, if you can understand what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, no, I mean, it's almost, it's almost like you're, it's like uh, you're sort of a, 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 a king of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a new world, so to speak, almost. You could never replicate that if, after a decade in, in Europe, you know. You know yeah, I was a big fish in a small Europe. pond. Really, a big fish in a small pond, that's what it was. So it was up to, my, it was up to me to keep playing well and scoring goals. And what, what what the Chinese and local fans liked about me, particularly was the games against uh, opposition from Europe, particularly at Chinese New Year. I mean, I remember one game we played against Hamburg uh, and they had a great team. And we won the game 1-0 and I scored the goal. And uh, fans just went went crazy. And and it, it, gave me, it gave me a great feeling because... What they had given to me, I was giving back to them in the football field and making them happy. And you know if you're a supporter of a team and you're playing against a big team and you beat them, you go home happy as a supporter. And that's what I love doing for the Hong Kong the Hong Kong fans. And I remember after we played Hamburg, I was down in a quaint little place called Shekel, which has got a nice beach where, where William Holden and made that movie and love is a many splendid thing and uh, we were down training on the sand at Sheko about uh, two three weeks after this game we'd beaten uh, uh, Hamburg and I'm sitting there and this old man very old spoke to our manager and he started looking gesturing towards me and the manager said to me you know what he said to me I said no I have no idea Ian he said he said the day you played against Hamburg. The whole village was watching the game and all the little ramshackle shops and everything. He said, when you scored and won the game, everybody got drunk. <laughs> and that, that, for me, that just made me put a lump in my throat. So that, that was an indication that I had given back to the Hong Kong fans and that made me happy. And I had no intention of going back to Scotland and playing there. My home was in Hong Kong. You also had you also had plenty of uh, visiting teams from other countries coming to play. Yes, either yes. preseason exhibition, probably not international competition per se, though, right? No, no, there wasn't international. Uh, so we had tournaments at Chinese New Year over sort of February, late January, February, or the beginning of March, and that's when teams came because it was a big holiday in Hong Kong. And that was the team. That was the time when the teams came over to play. Do you um, do you remember some of the teams that uh, that did come over, uh, maybe on a on a fairly regular basis? And I mean, Santos, right? Was you know, well, Santos, Santos came. Santos every... came in nineteen seventy, and they came sure. back in seventy two. And they toured all the time, right? I mean, you know, Pele yeah, they toured. They toured Milton. because they had they had, they had a lot. Of, although he wasn't making millions, he was still making a hefty bit of money in those days, Pele. So they had to. They toured a lot in order to to get money for the club, uh, which which they needed. And I remember they came back in '72, and we were at the Lee Gardens Hotel, which is Causeway Bay, uh, if anybody knows Hong Kong. And going up the escalator was Pelly, and there was a press conference. And and I somehow I came in at the same time, and I'm a bit a yard or two behind them. And Pelly turned around and saw me, and he said. Number 11, how are you? And I said, that'll do me. They might not remember my name, but it remembers my number. That's a big thank you. <laughs> we played against, we played against, 
Sporting, Lisbon, I think I probably get one of the best goals I'd ever scored. They beat them 4-2 and they got in the semi-final with the Cup Winners' Cup the year before. And, and let's not kid ourselves. These teams never came for a holiday. They came to show off their talent. So we beat some very, very good teams over the years. Did... Um... Do you remember, uh, so you played for uh, uh, Seiko for a number of years. Yeah, what, what happened was I, I, I played for Hong Kong Rangers for two years. And then Seiko was the new kid in the town. Uh, they got an advertising budget, about a million Hong Kong dollars. And the two brothers who owned the club decided, rather than spend money in TV advertising, they start a football club. And they did, and they were successful, and they got in the first division, and then they wanted to get the best players they could, who were available in Hong Kong from the new season, 1972-73 uh, season. And I was one of the players. And my manager didn't want to let me go. But eventually I managed to get me and uh, I joined Seiko. And they became probably one of the most ses- successful clubs in, in, in Hong Kong history after that. So much so we even played against it. We played against a new. We'll come to it later. We played against the Cosmos. I think seventy nine. Okay, let's let's go there. I was going to get to. I was going to wait till Leah. But uh, so according to my crack research, September twentieth, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. You, do you remember that game? Oh, very well. I'll tell you. I remember it very well. We. It was it was a wet old night, and they had two World Cup winners on their team. They had Beckenbar on the team, and they had Carlos Alberto in the team. And had a chap called Johan Niskins, who was a great player. Uh, he was in the 74 team, uh, lost to West Germany in the final. And they had some great players. <laughs> and I actually said to a friend of mine, I want you to do me a favour. Because I, I was doing a little column for the Hong Kong Tatler magazine. And I said to a friend of mine, I want you to do one thing. When the game finishes, when we come off the field, I want a picture with Franz Beckenbar and the jerseys and the sweat and the mud all over us. Okay. Unfortunately, it was a wet old night. And when he went, he pushed the film forward. He made a mistake and there was no picture. <laughs> Which was a great disappointment because it's, it's nice getting a picture on the field with some of the greats that you grew up watching. Anyway, what happened that night? We all had a good night afterwards. And then the next, mor- the next morning, my wife get, gets up and she, she says, who's that lying in the couch? I said, he's a very famous football player. He's just tired. It was Johan Niskins. Johan Niskins was sleeping on your couch. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, he was, yeah we went, we went, because it was, the game never finished to about half past ten. So we went and had a couple of beers and nightcap and came back to my place. And uh, But we were winning that game three tour. And then uh, Beckenbar got pulled down in the last minute or something. And I think it was George Chenagle who went up and took the penalty and ended up three each. As but, uh, always a, did. Was, he always wanted to get those extra goals with the penalty kicks. Yeah, he did. He did. And I've still actually I've got I've got some great mementos here. I've still I've got a I've got a shirt here with the Cosmos. And uh, and when Carlos Alberto a number of years back was in Bangkok, we had a chat and I showed him it. And he remembered the night. And uh, he actually signed it for me. It wasn't his shirt, but I've got a I've got a good memories with shirts uh, I've exchanged with people. And of course the big one was uh, well you'll get to it was is 76 in San Antonio, which I still have.
All right, what's this? OldSchoolShirts.com. Fantastic. You've heard me talk on and on and on about the great folks and the great wares at OldSchoolShirts.com. Like the name implies, it's old school and it's shirts, and they put them together, see, into what they call OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, it's like the name implies, but of course, we love them primarily uh, for their sports wear. You name the league of the past, you name the team of the past, the chances are huge that they're going to have more than one shirt and different color schemes for things that you may remember from the United Football League or the major indoor soccer league or various flavors of the original XFLs, plural, or the Federal League, perhaps, or maybe World Team Tennis, or maybe it was the North American Soccer League and on and on and on. But hey, it's not just sports. It's also great cultural touchstones and memories from the past. How about the officially licensed Evil Knievel connection? Connection? How about collection? Yeah, that's what he's trying to say. Uh, Various colleges. How about dead malls of the past? Ice cream parlors, maybe even radio stations that you might remember. Hey, even there's a latest edition of the old, now old, Aloha Stadium commemorative shirt. All that kind of stuff and more. You will find at least a handful of shirts that you will just transport you back into your past and you will amaze and impress your friends at the same time. It's oldschoolshirts.com. And we got a promo code for you, of course. Let's save you some dough while you go there. And it's uh, promo code is good seats. Good seats. That's the promo code at oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Hey, P.F. Wilson and your friends at oldschoolshirts.com, thank you for your sponsorship of the show. And now, back to our conversation. I do want to get to the story of how one gets loaned to a team in the United States. How does that even come about? So tell me how. Well, were there other I'll tell people? you what. Yeah, go ahead. I'll tell you what happened, Tim. Jim, Jim Forrest was the assistant at San Antonio Thunder to Don Beatty, assistant coach. And Jim knew I was scoring a lot of goals in Hong Kong and he wanted to take me there. And I had, uh, I was going through, I'd been married, I'd been married twice, but the first marriage, uh, we weren't compatible and I was going through a little bit of a problem. So Jim lured me over to San Antonio with the option that if things didn't work out, I could go back to Seiko in Hong Kong, basically. So, so, so that was why I went to San Antonio in the first place. So let me, let's just back up for a second. So this is 1976. Is this... Is this in your, is the NAS, first of all, what did you know about the United States in terms of soccer? Did you know much about the North American Soccer League? I I suspect that you knew that Pelé had signed for the Cosmos in 1975, a little bit, but you probably didn't know a whole lot. Maybe you didn't even know where San Antonio, Texas was for all, for God. Oh, and you, listen, hey, listen, and you, but San Antonio was, remember the Alamo, Sam Houston. You got in the member. I was a big, I was a big Western buff, so I knew all fair, about San Antonio. <laughs> I knew all about the states and and and, and well, uh, anyway, yeah, I, I, it was an again, it was an adventure. It was it was a change for me, so that's that's why I went off and uh, and of course the nice thing was knowing that the the Cosmos were coming to play the last exhibition game before the bicentennial season began against the San Antonio Thunder. 
uh, and uh, I mean I remember that night very well. They're playing the Yellow Rose of Texas. It's going on to the field. There's Bobby Moore leading the San Antonio Thunder onto the field. Pelly leading the Cosmos. And there's me about two or three behind Bobby Moore. I remember just looking up to the sky and saying, Dad, I hope you're watching. Because my dad had died two years earlier and he would have been very proud to see his son going on the field with Pelly and Bobby Moore. And we actually won the game 1-0. Not everybody can say that we're a winning team against Pelly, but once out of five times wasn't too bad. So, okay, what was the whole arrangement uh, set up to be a loan, or was this a full-on transfer and you were going from Seiko? Well, it was, it was a case of see how things work out. I had the option, you know. I had the option, right, to go back to, to, to Hong Kong and things never worked out. And as, as I've described in my book, uh, my style of play was not suited to the way Bobby Moore wanted the team to play. He wanted me to come back as an orthodox winger and pick up the ball in defensive, whereas all I wanted to do was be up front in the action, scoring goals, putting the ball in the back of the net. So it never really worked. And there were so many players coming over, well-known players from Scotland and other, and, and England as well. So the, the roster of the team was only, I think it was 18 or something. You had only, you had, you had the X amount of American players in the team as well. So I ended up, I was, I was sitting there like the super sub and uh, eventually we just gave me agreement and I, and I went back to, I went back to Hong Kong, but I had, I had about three months and, and a bit over there and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Going to the places, seeing the stadiums. But I will, I will say one thing about the development of the game. One of, one of the problems, as I saw in, in, in 76, was, was the standard of the playing fields. I would have to say they were pretty awful. And I remember the, the second game we played, and uh, it was the ground was a, I think it was a campus or something, and it was, oh, it was, it was in just in a shocking state. They didn't even have proper changing rooms. And this was in San Diego. And uh, the fields were not good. The places we went, obviously, all that's changed as, as American football and NSL's progress. But at the time, the footballs, the football stadiums, and the playing surfaces were very, very substandard. Tim. Oh, for sure, right? So you know, I, there's a very famous story in 1975 when Pele played his first match for for Cosmos. Um, it was a hastily arranged exhibition on national television in the States, and they played it at a stadium really the, that the Cosmos were playing in at the time, which was sort of this rickety old war, you know, time facility in between Manhattan and Queens on a place yeah. Randall's Island in, in, in New York City. And half the field was dirt that was painted green. Uh, it was. I can, I can imagine it because I remember the San Diego Stadium, and it wasn't any better. I can assure you. Well, okay, so so, so describe that for me because San Antonio, first of all, so it, it, I think just for, for 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 history here, you came into this this San Antonio Thunder franchise in its second and last year when it was in San. Yeah, Antonio. before they before they went to Hawaii. Yes. Right, and it was a team that was kind of traveling. Just it was this was classic NASL where a team would play for two years and change its name and get different owners and all that kind of stuff. But um, let's put it this way. Soccer was barely on the radar in the United States, let alone deep in the heart of Texas, right? 
Well, in, in, in Texas, I think they had a big Mexican community. And, of course, the Mexicans love the football. So I think that was the reason they, they chose Texas. And the word lay was from sure, Boston. But, 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 uh, he but, but he but was from to, Dallas himself. Sure, but so then to populate... No, I'm sorry. But then to populate it with a whole bunch of Scottish players and and, and the national team captain of England uh, seems like a, a bit of a... <laughs> bit of a mismatch well they had it no they had they had Jose Barrico they had a few they had the Brazilian they had a few uh, Latin American players in the team it was a bit of a mixture as well although it ended up being built around Bobby Moore the, the England captain as you said but uh, you know I the first game in the Bison tent well okay we played again we played against uh, uh, in New York Cosmos and I, I mentioned it in the book and I, and I remember uh, and the halfway line, the ball bounced awkwardly as it would in a not a great surface. And Pelly and I are going for the ball, and Pelly ends up on the ground, and I'm lying on top of him. <laughs> and it looks like a sex act, <laughs> but it's just the circumstances. It would have been a great picture of somebody taking a snap me lying on top of Pelly. Anyway, as, as we both got up, the referee came and gave me a yellow card. And it was only an accident. And we had the ball bounce and we went down awkwardly. And, and Billy said, no, 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 accident. And I'm saying, but I want a yellow card, Pelly. <laughs> I can tell Pelly, I got, I got a yellow card against Pelly. <laughs> but no, the referee, it patted me in the head, accident. And that's the sportsman Pelly was anyway. And we sort of knew each other anyway. But he, he was a great guy. But the big game was against the St. Louis All-Stars. And it was the opening game, bicentennial season, in 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 the US. And funny enough, I I was born in 1949, 8th of February, and I scored my goal in the 49th minute. So I mean, it gets a wee bit. I can be a wee bit superstitious now and again, Tim. You know, it's in the stars. Who knows? And 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 the funny thing about it was. Uh, St. Louis equalising the game. And, and it was a long throw by a chap called Al Trost, T-R-O-S-T, who sure, had Trost, 14 uh, caps. U.S. Soccer Hall of yeah, Fame. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hall of Fame, yeah, and he had 14 caps. And he threw a long ball in. And our keeper, it caught the wind. And our keeper didn't need to touch it because the goal would have been disallowed. But it hit his hand and it went in. And here's the thing. I looked up all the Al, Al Trost and that. And I know I, I got the first goal before him. Al was born on the 7th of February, 1949. And I was born on the 8th of February, 1949. And, I, and you just look at me and I say to myself, how scary is that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing when you when you look at it. And it was the first goal in the bicentennial year. Fortunately, I got the winner and I think it was the 83rd minute and we, and we won the game 2-1. But uh, I've still got that jersey. Number eleven, Don Beatty kindly gave it to me when I when I left. So uh, I've still got that jersey, which I'm sure should be in the museum someplace, certainly some USA museum. Well, we we will have a couple of pictures of that uh, as we post this episode. Let me a couple other questions before we go. We we leave the United States. Uh, I, I, uh, I I look at the roster of the 1976 San Antonio Thunder team. Yeah, and I count no fewer than nine, maybe ten players of Scottish origin on that team? Yeah, because I think they had a they had a 
they had a scout called Bobby Calder and Jim Forrest was the assistant. He was meant to play games, but he, he got injured, Jim. And, and Jim Forrest, sadly, died about three weeks ago. He was a great player for Glasgow and Rangers, scored many, many, many goals. Went on to join Aberdeen. But Jim was a bit injury-prone and he, and he ended up being the, the assistant to Don Beatty. And his influence was a guy, Bobby Calder. So he was a Scottish count, uh, scout. So that's, I think that's why he brought a lot of the Scottish players over to play for San Antonio. Did, did you know that coming over that it was going to be kind of a no? I didn't. I didn't know that. It was. It was. It, 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 no. It was just. It was just. It was just very fluid as it as it, as it turned on. You know, so the way it went, and uh, and of course it went over the big players and that, and of course that meant little Derek Curry from Hong Kong. Ah, oh, we'll put him in the bench, and Bobby wanted. Uh, Bobby didn't like it. the way I played. He wanted me back picking the ball up, as I said, but. No, no problem because I fully understood that, and Bobby and I became great friends. So it's just, it's just the way, it's just the way a team plays. It's the way they have a system, how they want to play. And if you look at a lot of the games with the, the, the San Antonio Thunder, they lost so many games like one nil or two one or very close encounters because defensively they were very good, and that suited Bobby. He was getting on in years as well, but they weren't scoring goals, and that's what wins games, Tim. Uh, how about the play, the style of play, the uh, the rules, which were a little different, uh, trying to make it Americanized, and the fans? Uh, uh, were they passionate? Uh, not a, not around? Uh, did you different cities? Like what? Which give me a give me a little sort of taste of what your what your three four month experience in the United States was like in terms of play and and that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, it was good. I mean, it was it's like one other thing is you see, it's like. Uh, it was like a travel log, you know, you were going to, you were going to all over America, you know, you'd fly from San Antonio to Dallas, you go to San, San Diego, you go to Portland, Oregon. So you saw in the different cities as well and, and different types of played up in Portland, we're playing on a, it was AstroTurf. Uh, it was so, rock hard AstroTurf too, right? Well, yeah, I remember we were up and played a, a couple of friendly games up in Spokane and Tacoma. And one of the games was in an AstroTurf. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't a good AstroTurf surface. When the ball came to you and it bounced, if it didn't come to your feet and it bounced maybe half a yard in front of you, it went about six feet over your head. <laughs> but these are these are the these are the things you've got to put up with. And these are the things that happens in the early day uh, soccer in the States, you know, in the early days, and all that changed over the years. As we got on to, as we, you know, we'll talk a wee bit later about the USA national team and I brought them to Hong Kong and 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 how they how they progressed a little bit later. All right, let me let me ask you this about the about the travel. The travel must have been completely new to you because such such long distances and such short times to recover. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't. When when you're young, you're you get enthusiasm, you're excited, you go to a different place. That I didn't that didn't worry me. It didn't. It didn't worry me. The only thing I remember was when we went up to, I think it was uh, when we went up to Portland, and, I, and then we flew over to Tacoma somewhere in these little twin otter planes. You know, that was a little bit scary if you were claustrophobia, for suffering from claustrophobia. You know, but twelve of you in one plane and twelve of you in another plane flying over the Cascade Mountains. <laughs> yeah, it's a little unnerving if you don't know what you're in for. 
well, you don't, if you don't, you know, you, you think, you know, you're going to go on a big plane and suddenly in a little turbo plop, you know, and you say, oh, what's going on here? But then again, when you're young, as I've always said, you're a bit fearless. Maybe you get a bit older, you think twice about it. Uh, and and what did you think about the the rules? The different the, was the shootout there at that time. There certainly was a point. Yeah, yeah, they had the, they had the shootout. I remember we we adopted it once. We we adopted it once in in Hong Kong in a a league eleven game, and we were we playing against uh, a Yugoslavian. It was a Yugoslavian team at the time, and uh, we actually won the shootout. It's yeah, it was something different. It was something different because there was a bit of skill in it. He only had a few seconds from takeoff to put the ball past the goalkeeper. It wasn't easy. People might think it's easy, but it's a lot of pressure. Uh, and some say it was as good as a penalty shootout. Yeah, I, you know, we talk about this a lot, and I'll get your thoughts in, in a few minutes about sort of like the state of soccer now. But I, you know, I look at the penalty shootouts now, especially in the major, you know, your you know, uh, international competitions and stuff. And I, I don't know. The penalty is just, just. I, I look at the, the old 35-yard line NASL-type shootout with five seconds to shoot. It feels a lot more exciting to me, a little bit more uh, chance, and frankly, a little bit more skill on both sides of the ball versus just sort of, you know, it feels more like a more just like chance in a penalty kick scenario. I know there's... Yeah, but it's still... Ball. It's still sudden. It's it, No matter what you do, it's still sudden death, and you've got that excitement that's... Uh, the, it is more skillful from the 35 yards, you know, running there. And it's not easy because you've got to make up your mind what, you, what you're going to do. Are you, are you going to run with the ball? And are you going to lob it over the goalkeeper's head? Are you going to go for pace? But then the other the other thing is, if you're playing in a, in a ground which is not in good condition and it's a bit uneven, it's not easy when you go and make contact with that ball and it takes a bobble. So it's all very well the shootout on a good playing surface, but it's not it's not easy on a bad surface. No, which was probably every other every stadium you were playing in the NASL at that time, right? Uh, most most of the time, yeah. All right. So when did you know? When did you sense that the Thunder thing wasn't going to work out? And and did you? Oh, when I went up to Portland, we we, we lost the game one 0 and of course they weren't scoring, and I knew, and I had words with Bobby and. and with the Don Beatty, and Don Beatty just said, fine, Derek, and I was allowed to go back to Hong Kong, and that was it, after the Portland. So I enjoyed it, but to be honest with you, Hong Kong, Hong Kong was my home, really, uh, and I missed it. And uh, so it was an adventure playing there. You were homesick for your adopted home. No, I wasn't, I, wasn't, <laughs> I, wouldn't say I, was, I wouldn't say I was homesick, but I knew I was going back there, and I wasn't, I, I didn't like the role and I wasn't getting the game time because I wasn't fitting into Bobby's system or how they wanted to play. I mean, I think Harry Hood was top goal scorer with the, what, I think he was with 10 goals or something and 20 appearances. I'd scored two goals and a couple of appearances in the league. So I think if I'd stayed there and I'd been allowed to play my game, Playing off a centre forward, my pace, I would have scored. I would have scored a lot of goals. But anyway, that's hypothetical. It didn't happen, and I went back. But it was a great, great experience, and it was nice to see this uh, beginning, the birth of US football, which was maybe starting to go in the right direction. But I think the real thing about about American football was it was homegrown players who made America the great team they are today. They went over in 1990 and they played the World Cup 
in Italy and uh, I was at one of the games when they lost 1-0 to Italy in Rome and they weren't such a bad team they lost I think they lost 2-1 to Austria and they did lose by 5-1 I think the Czechos were Fakia but it was a learning curve for the US boys and when Borer Milanovic took over for 94 it was a different team and they had a good team and when you want to talk about the players who were playing in in 94 I, I had I had I retired from the game and uh, I joined Carlsberg Big Beer Company as a PR manager and of course because of my face in Hong Kong uh, I was I was the face of Carlsberg and I I started the Carlsberg Cup Chinese New Year soccer tournament and we brought club and international teams to Hong Kong at Chinese New Year and in 94 we brought over the USA team and this is only months away from the World Cup starting in, 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 in the US and in that team they had people like uh, Brad Friedel, Kobe Jones, Alexi Lamas, Claudia Lena, Thomas Dooley, Joe Max Moore, Michelle Balboer, Mike Burns, Jeff Agus and if you look for instance in that team say Jones, Lena, Balboer and Agus they had about 530, they were going to have 537 caps for the US national team. So these were the boys who were the backbone and really got America off the mark in, in, world, in world football and respected, I might add, in world football. Oh, yeah. Le- legends, all of them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, on various on various levels. I, it's it's actually pretty amazing for you to, to hear all of that, uh, that knowledge of, of, of of the U.S. soccer sort of journey, right? Because, I mean, we're talking about you being there in 1976. That was, you know, that was still a relatively early part of, I mean, it was just, it was still fledgling at the time. Obviously, the latter part of the 70s, the NASL, Cosmos in particular. And then, as you probably know, by 1985, the whole thing just went away. And soccer fans like me at the time, right, were, Almost, and frankly, some of those players that you mentioned who were growing up around that time and, and sort of idolizing some of those players around that time almost felt uh, uh, abandoned. Actually, they did feel abandoned because there was no pro league all of a sudden, you know, after that, after that roaring start and, and, you know, those, those, those gigantic stadium, giant stadium crowds and stuff, all of a sudden there was nothing for good until the World Cup again in 94. Yeah, well, that was, I mean, the thing, it's all very well getting Pelly and George Best and Chinaglia and, and a few others, but they were all getting on. They weren't, they weren't going to do anything for the game or encourage the youngsters. So it was American youngsters who had to take the bull by the horn and make a name for themselves and make America proud. You know, the fans want to go and see their American team playing and winning games, and that's what they did. And, uh, I mean, when they came in 94, they played against Denmark. And... Uh, they drew nil nil and they're unlucky. They lost four two in penalty kicks, uh, and they lost to Romania that year two one, who were actually in the same group as, as the US, if you remember, in the in the in the ninety four World Cup. But they played well, and they had lots of good up and coming players, and uh, and uh, and of course Borer, the coach, was a was a great inspiration. I mean, he he actually took five. He was the first man to take five teams to the World Cup finals and he was very instrumental in getting the best out of the American boys and giving them the confidence and of course they, were, they had a great World Cup we were unlucky some games but they had a great World Cup in, in 94 and I and I covered the 94 World Cup I actually covered 
four World Cups and four European Championships for, for media and, and, and television. And uh, I was at the opening game at Soldier Field, the same the same stadium where I think Gene, Gene Tunney beat Jack Dempsey all those years ago. Because I know a bit about my boxing wow. history. Mr. Sports history, look at that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I remember the opening the opening ceremony at Soldier Field, my God, it was, you just, you couldn't move inside the stadium. You had, you had, you had Diana Ross singing and I think Osborne Winfrey was there. I remember she slipped off the stage and, uh, and I think the Chicago boy, Richard Marks, he sang the national anthem at that game. That's remember right. it well. That's that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you look back at some of the video, that's a little gaudy, a very, very American in, in all of its gaudiness. Right. But, um, that's what it was. We'll see if we can redeem ourselves in the, in a few years when it finally comes back here. All right, let me give you a couple other roundup questions here. So, so you 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 go back after your let's call it an American adventure. Yes. Back to Hong Kong. You're you're it was Seiko, and then then you decide that the Seiko watch isn't good enough, so you're going to go to Bulova for a year. Uh, yeah, well, that was the end. Of, that was the end of my career because I was I was joining I was joining uh, Carlsberg. So I was, that meant I wasn't training full time. So that was just Bover and Eastern just tapering off my career, basically. But you were sent off, though, with some great fanfare at 82. You had a testimonial game in your, on your, uh, in your, uh, yeah, against Stuttgart. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, they gave me a nice, a nice, nice, uh, silver salver after the game, which was, which was lovely. <coughs> Went down the stadium with all the fans. That, that was nice. It was a, yeah, but yeah, I always felt a Hong Kong person, and uh, and it was it was it was a nice send off, Tim. So you 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 essentially are kind of maybe still are revered as sort of a as kind of a a local hero in in Hong Kong and as a as a professional player. I'm guessing. I mean, almost almost like a pioneer of the professional. Yes, player, would you say? It's, yeah, and in, in, in Hong Kong, it's like the. They know me. They know the name. If you say yes, or Goyle, but if I was walking in the street, I wouldn't be immediately recognised with many of the younger generation. But if I go in the taxi, the old taxi drivers normally drive you and they're looking in the mirror and they say to you, Ni hai Goyle, are you curry? And I'll go, oh, hi, I am. <laughs> and, and they recognise and then they want to have a chat and all that. So it's, it's nice from, from that aspect. It's nice to be in the member and that's the main thing. Especially, and I, and I love the Hong Kong people as well, you know. Great, and, and Hong Kong, to me, was and still is one of the greatest cities in the world. So explain to me, um, you, your, you, your international career was, uh, play, was for, for Hong Kong. You played for the national team of Hong Kong. Why not Scotland? And why Hong Kong? Where had you would just... Had you just oh, I'd been, I'd, been away, I'd, been, I'd been away. I'd been away too long and I was... You know, out of sight, out of sight over over there, and sure. I played for the and, and and the thing is, I was playing for the Hong Kong League Eleven, and you had to be seven years in Hong Kong before you were eligible to play for the national team. That was on their own. So, <clears throat> by the time they decided that they were going to use foreign players, and that was '79, and we went and played in the Asian Cup game in Bangkok uh, for the Hong Kong national team. And funnily enough, I got my first goal. We beat Sri Lanka 5-0 in a game, and I got my first goal with my head again. <coughs> and, uh, yeah, and uh, so that was nice, but it, it was a pity I had to wait seven years because my 
best years were obviously my early years in Hong Kong, but that was that was a game. So, and yeah, no, Scotland would have been uh, nice, but I think that was a bridge too far out of sight, out of mind. Scotland had a lot of players, good players over the years, and they weren't going to go over to Hong Kong and pick somebody from Hong Kong to to go back and play a game for for uh, for Scotland. All right, a couple of roundup questions. How do you remember how many goals you scored in your professional career? Do you ever add them up? Oh God, I would say I would say close to two hundred and fifty. Wow. Yeah, and say I bet, about two hundred. Let you remember just about each one of them, though, right? Uh, especially the ones. No, I don't, at least I the ones. Some of them. At least the ones with your head, right? I remember some. Yeah, at least my head I remember. Yeah, but not not all of them. And uh, yeah, did you know? Did a lot of good things as well. Did a lot of charity work in Hong Kong. I, and remember, I spent 20 hours on, I don't know if you, how well you know Hong Kong or uh, some of the attractions. One is called the Star Ferry, which goes from, it's a ferry which goes between Hong Kong and Kowloon. <clears throat> I spent 20, 20 hours on it one day, getting on and off and signing our name for charity. And uh, we raised a lot of money for a children's home. And so, you know, you did a lot of good charitable work as well. Which, which, which was nice, giving something back to the community. And <clears throat> met a lot of interesting people, as you know, in the book. You know, there's a story about Marvin Hagler and Stevie Wonder, and that was just that was, that was a story and a half, I can tell you, Tim. Well, give, give me a, a, a set, and obviously we want people to buy the book too, so, they, so we don't give all of this away just for free here on this little show. But um, tell me about Hong Kong since, right? Obviously it has been transitioned back to if you will chinese mainland oversight uh, obviously it's it's a uh, it's a very it's been handed back yeah Hong yeah it's Kong, a fraught yeah, political it's a chinese, si- yes. but but uh when's the last time you were there how often do you go back and uh could do you think you could do the same today or i sus- i suspect that the environment is very different than where you played when you played yes yes it's it's different i was i was back this year and <clears throat> i was back and a end of March, April for the Hong Kong Rugby Sevens, and <clears throat> I went back there and I helped. Did, I did some stuff promotion for the book as well, and uh, it was it was nice. It's always nice to get back there, and I try and get back to Hong Kong two three times a year. Uh, and I remember I met. I was I was a guest in the rugby union in the box, and there was a lot of dignity there, and uh, former rugby players as well. And, and John Lee was there, the, the new CEO of uh, Hong Kong as well, and uh, I gave him a copy of the book, actually. And, uh, and then I just said, hey, John, it's a, it's a very tough job, and I wish you well for the, for the people of Hong Kong. And uh, it's difficult circumstances from what it used to be, but as I said, I still think it's a great city, and I, and I hope it prospers again. And football in Hong Kong, maybe it's not as good as what it was, because we're in a different age now, Tim, where I keep mentioning computers, all the apps. Really, for Hong Kong to be successful again, you need some homegrown superstars in Hong Kong. You get two or three homegrown superstars and they start to win games. Then you'd suddenly see 25, 28,000, 30,000 people supporting Hong Kong at the stadium again. But you need the players to, to, to encourage the fans to come and watch. Do you think it's a tougher with it's obviously much more difficult, I think, for Hong Kong to become or to stay as autonomous as it was 
under under British control, right? In terms of being able to have that kind of soccer playing identity separate from whatever. I, I don't think I don't think have. politics is getting to do with the football in Hong Kong at the moment. I don't think the politics is getting to do with it. I mean, football is an accepted sport. And there shouldn't be any poli- there shouldn't be any politics in football, and there's no politics as far as I can see in, in Hong Kong football at the moment. Interesting. So that means that so there is a distinct sort of Hong Kong sort of association and play that's separate from yeah. The, the Hong Kong have got a coach. They've got the you know they're playing in some Asian qualifiers and that, and they're they're getting some half decent results. <clears throat> and a lot of the athletes did well, I think, at the national games in China. They won a few, quite a few gold medals, which was which was quite good, <coughs> and they were all rewarded recently, which was which was nice to see. So yeah, I mean, I'm hoping Hong Kong can prosper again, as uh, as most cities in, in Asia can, because I, I think I'm very much a nation man, having spent over 50 years in Asia. And let me let let that be the segue to sort of my last sort of little bunch of questions here, uh, and this really story is the. You know the state of play today. What is your sense of of the professional game, both in Asia and worldwide? And uh, obviously, the money and the international ownership and and multiple team ownership and tournaments left and right and center and the players just I, playing all these games and 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 you know never seeming to have a break and stuff. Uh, it's the best of times, but also arguably a little worrisome uh, on some levels. What's your? How do you look? The best of still, times and the worst of yeah, times. Yeah, I mean, are, are, you, are, you cities, still, yes. are you are you still a fan? Are you still hopeful? Do you think FIFA is running amok with forty eight teams in the World Cup? I mean, what's your what's your what's your thought about the state of the game these days? Oh, I think it's too. I think I, I think I think there's too much money in the game. <clears throat> there's too much money involved in the game. Uh, and that is why we're we're seeing forty eight teams and yeah, and we're forgetting about the football fans as well. I, I remember jumping on a plane uh, in New York in ninety ninety four, and there was Lagarde there, and there was a flight to Dallas, and I and before the flight, I met Michelle Platini, who was who was running the the mill over the 94 World Cup because the 98 World Cup is going to be held in France and we had a good chat and I said well, what do you think what have you seen he said well he said in the States here he said I think it's just too far for the fans to get to all the games because it's spread out in different parts of the States he said in France it will take no more than two hours to get anywhere to watch any game between or whatever and that's what people are forgetting, I think. They're forgetting about the fans. The players are getting all those money, all this money, big money, but the fans are the people who make the game. They ignite the atmosphere into the stadium. And there's far too many games, in my opinion. And that's why everybody's trying to milk it. And, you know, there's, there's too much of a difference between, look, the English Premier League, the money involved there, and the, and the, and the teams that don't have the money, the difference... And I'm I'm not I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of too many games. I think you've got to cut down in the games to whet the appetite for the fans and make it easy for them to get to games and support the team. And of course, television's the other thing. And then you talk about VAR, which for me has been totally wrongly used, especially the offside nil. 
you know, you're, you're getting you're getting instances in a game where the guy's big toe is maybe half an inch towards goal and a goal is disallowed. For me, that's awful. We want to encourage goals in the game. And I, I would say, if you want to make it offside, there's got to be a body, a difference, if there's a body, one body between the first and the sort of last player before you give the offside. No, I don't like the way VR's been used, the way it's stopped and people... You know, when you slow things down, things look bad. You see a chap going past, a forward going past a defender, not towards goals. He's going away from goal. Defender goes for the ball and he catches him very marginally, marginally. But when it's slowed down, it's a penalty kick. Referees in the old days used their common sense. And I think we need more common sense in the game nowadays. I don't like the way games have been refereed. By, by television I think it's good in certain instances the ball over the line and other things but I think there's got to be a lot of changes in VAR Tim How about how about Scotland specifically will we ever see them raise the uh, European uh, Championship Cup at some point I mean uh, and it's Short answer no <laughs> Sadly <laughs> Well, no, I also, I also, we always we always go away with another glorious failure. Well, I I always I also look to it. I, 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 this is sort of another sort of. I always look at the at the at the Scottish game as being. I mean, you you mentioned some of those, you know, the, the firm and the, the old derbies and all that stuff, and but it, it also feels marginalized when you look at the Premier League, right? And you know, sh- sh- what about a British league where you can you know bring in some of the better teams from? I, I don't know. It just feels like that Scotland is. is there should have been. It should have been the British League. There yeah, should have been the British I think League so. a long time, a long time ago, and uh, Rangers and Celtic should have been invited into it. Whether least. or not they go, whether or not they go straight into the the top division or they have to work their way up is another matter. But that would also give the other clubs in Scotland a chance to get into Europe and make money. Uh, but. It seems to me that the EPL, they don't want to share the money. They don't want to share the wealth with other clubs, you know, and they don't, they don't want to. And, and I think we should have a British league. And, and as I said, there's too much money in the game. You've got to admire Manchester City, how well they play under Pep Guardiola. But, I mean, you look at the team, they've got two teams, and you look at the amount of money they've spent and how much the Arab world has put into the game, which for me is devaluing football. Football should always be a passionate game and it should, to the best, be in equal terms for both teams. But such a difference with the money. And you, you look at the Scottish clubs, Celtic and Rangers, they're playing in Europe. And you look at some of the teams they're playing against and the money they've got and the players they've got in the team. It's not a level playing field now. Uh, and I think money has obviously ruined the game to a large extent. And there's far too many games, I agree with you. Far too many games. All right. A thoroughly enjoyable conversation. Our thanks to Derek for having it and staying up late or getting up early. I forget which it was. uh, All the way from Thailand. And the book uh, is chock full of great stories, anecdotes, uh, remembrances, Uh, celebrities, uh, famous teams, and all that kind of stuff uh, from his playing days and then some. It is called When Jesus Came to Hong Kong, the remarkable story of the first European football star in Asia. It is published uh, by our friends at Blacksmith Books, and it is available now wherever you find good books. 
the best and easiest and quickest way to get it is through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 331 with Derek Curry, and you will find a convenient link that will take you to Amazon, and you will get it as quickly as uh, you can humanly get it. And I highly encourage you to do so. You will love it, uh, as I did. Uh, Pele makes an appearance. Marvin Hagler is in there. Stevie Wonder shows up. Uh, And yes, uh, the San Antonio Thunder are discussed, as we talked about in our chat. And uh, on our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, when you find that episode, you will find uh, some great pictures that uh, Derek has shared with us. Some uh, from back in the day when he was with San Antonio, the Thunder. Some uh, some, uh, great shots there, as well as a a pristine version uh, of the original uh, Dallas San Antonio Thunder jersey that he still has. It's gorgeous. Uh, it is a, truly a work of art, that uh, that Thunder uniform. And I think even uh, our friend Pablo Mara will like that uh, that jersey for his collection. It is uh, rare if there ever was an NASL jersey uh, that was hard to find. And uh, it is colorful and arguably in the top five uh, designs of all time uh, from the old NASL, in my humble opinion. Uh, while you're on our website, uh, goodseatsavailable.com, you can also find all of our episodes. We post them there, of course, if, uh, if you haven't found them already in your streaming device uh, or your podcast catcher or whatever you use to ingest our show. Uh, it's a great way to kind of sample around and stream and maybe uh, share uh, an episode or two with some of your friends. But the best way, of course, to, to get our great stuff uh, each and every week is to subscribe or follow us wherever you get podcasts. And uh, rate and review us, will you please? Hopefully nice ones. Uh, That helps the algorithm and other people like you uh, find this show and uh, they'll tell two friends and so on and so on. Uh, You can follow us uh, on various socials. Uh, You'll find us on X slash Twitter at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on threads at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on YouTube at Good Seats Still Available. You'll also find us on Facebook and you can also send us email if you'd like. We're at hello at goodseatstillavailable.com. Thank you to Jerry Payne. Happy New Year to you, sir. Jerry Payne. Audio excellence. Uh, it is a brand new year, and uh, we thank you for sticking by uh, with us for yet another one of those. So we appreciate that kind, sir. And uh, we, of course, uh, wish you and uh, yours uh, the best start to uh, this 2024. Who knows what's in store? Uh, but we hope it's a good year for all of you. And uh, thank you for listening, of course. And uh, we appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.